We're going to pray. Shall we pray? And Pastor Michael's going to come and share. So we're just, let's just pray for, for Pastor Mike as, as he's about to come up here and, and, and share God's word today. Father God, we thank you for, for Mike, Michael and Yvonne and for their faith and uh, their service and the fact that they're continuing to do that um, here today. We, we, we're just delighted and, and uh, thank you for them. And just pray now tonight as, as Michael comes and shares what you've put upon his heart, that he might have a complete sense of freedom and release to go with whatever you've given him and lead him. And we pray that our hearts, we want to open our hearts and our minds and spirits to what um, is about to be said and released into the atmosphere. We, think, we pray for a release of miracles, the release of miracles, the release of miracles in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, let's welcome Michael as he comes. Thank you so much. Amen. Tonight I want to talk to you about miracles. Uh, obviously that's been the theme of the, uh, of the ministry and the songs and so on, which is always wonderful. I want to really take you through the Bible uh, in a very simple way tonight and talk about three different situations, three different men, Three circumstances which changed our world. Now, I know we're living in difficult times, and I know that we're all aware of Brexit and all the rest of it. However, what you need to know is that it's got absolutely nothing to do with the Christian church. Because what we are, and who we are, <clears throat> how we stand before God, and if we all stood together as one in Jesus' name, we would revolutionize our nation. The politicians are minimalists. They only see their own little view of their own little world. And it doesn't matter what color they are, it's all the same thing. At the end of the day, we serve the living Savior. We serve a risen God, a living God who is able to transform and change people's lives, their circumstance, and their situation. So I'm going to talk about three mountains that people had to climb. Three mountains that I believe every one of us here tonight need to learn to climb. Very simple, very easy to understand. One is the Mount of Consecration. The second one is the Mount of Revelation. And the third one is the Mount of Declaration. There are three ways that we can walk with God and we can come into a powerful relationship with Him. But it all begins with consecration. And in the Bible, the first illustration we have of that is to be found when Abraham, that man who had brought from Iraq, came up through Iran and came down into what we now call Israel. He began and he was following the will of God and the purposes of God right at the beginning of that situation. And he came to a place and God had blessed him and his wife, Sarah. They were elderly and I'm not suggesting for one moment the ladies would want this in any way, but Sarah was quite old when she had Isaac. And we, we know the difficulties, of course, with all of that when ladies have, uh, have babies. Uh, I, of course, I've never understood that myself, but there we are. Um, well, I've always managed to avoid it. Um, we've got three children. And uh, the first one, I was in a, a camp here, uh, a youth camp. And uh, our first son was born very unexpectedly. And I had someone come to the tent and shout me and tell me I needed to get up to the hospital very quickly. Uh, of course, naturally, I'd missed the birth. And that was the first one. 
the second one was our daughter, and I was at the Elim conference. And I was underneath a car repairing the pump of one of the pastor's wives because she, it had all broken down, and it came over the tannoy that Bernard Epton had got a granddaughter. And I thought, hang on a moment, Bernard Epton, that must be mean. Oh, right, that's me, as it were. So I wasn't there either for that one. The third one was my son Paul, and of course, naturally, as always, we, we were always very busy and working for the Savior. It was Tuesday night, prayer meeting night, and uh, I'd got to go and do the prayer meeting. And I looked at the midwife, because Yvonne was having the baby at home, and I said to her, I said, how long have we got? And she said, well, she said, well there's plenty of time yet. Uh, I said, well, look, I've got to get the service. It starts off by seven. I can be back by about ten past nine. She said, oh, it should be fine, plenty of time. So, of course, off I shot and did what we do, and I managed to get back, as I promised. In fact, I think I was a bit early, about five past nine even. And when I got home, of course, there was panic because the lady, bless her, was giving Yvonne gas and air, whatever that means. What I do know is it was all going very wrong because I think Yvonne was getting more gas than she was air. The valve had jammed. And so this lady was going, absolutely, what do I do? What am I going to do? So I nipped and got a hammer and, as you do, gave it a quick bang, and it was fine. And a few, a few minutes later, Paul was born. So I was kind of there, sort of. So I know very little about that. But what I do know is that Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Now, he became a cherished child. And it was through this marvelous situation Abraham, old as he was, having followed God and been faithful in his witness with him for so long. And God said to him, now you've got this son Isaac. And he wasn't a little child. He wasn't a baby. He was a young teenager. And he said to him, I want you to take your son and I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. Now, any parent would know the awfulness of that statement. We live in a world today that is wrecked with difficulty and awfulness when it comes to relationship with children and how parents treat them and so on. But this was different. Abraham, I don't think, told Sarah very clearly or helped her to understand the situation. He really kept it rather quiet. He said to all the servants, we're going to go get the donkey. And he said to Isaac, we're going to go and we're going to go somewhere special. And so they set off and they came to the Mount Moriah and when they got to the foot of this hill, um, Abraham turned to the men. He said, you stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will carry on. As they were walking up the hill, Isaac being an intelligent young man, he said, Dad, you've got the wood and I've got the fire. He said, but where's the sacrifice? Good question. Very good question. And Abraham's reaction was very simple. God will himself provide the sacrifice. Now, when he spoke to the men at the bottom of that hill, he said to them, he said, you stay here and we, plural, will return. Now, how could Abraham say that? He knew what God had said. He knew that this was a really, really serious situation. And yet there was something about Abraham that insisted in faith, in total confidence, that God would provide. He didn't know how. And he had to go and continue with it. He built the offering, the place and the altar. He put the wood in place and he got Isaac and he tied him up and he put him on this altar. Now, there's one moment I want to stop here because Isaac had to be willing to let his father do what he was doing. How many young people in our world today would let their father do that? 
All social services will be on it straight away. The reality is this. Isaac understood his father's faith. He believed in his dad. He didn't know a lot lot about God, but he did believe in his father, his earthly father. And just as Abraham was raising that knife, God spoke to him from the heavens with a loud voice. He said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am, which was fairly obvious. He said, don't touch that child, not one hair. You don't need to do anything else. And as God spoke those words, Abraham turned and realized that there was a ram caught in the thicket behind him. Had it been there all the time? Maybe. What I do know is that ram became the sacrifice. The important thing in all of this was that Abraham was willing to consecrate his son. We heard this morning in ministry, and it's very clear when we've heard all about this thing about selfies. In this very moment, Abraham was demonstrating it was not about him. It was about God. His belief, his faith in the living God was something he now was put to the test. And he came to that moment and looked at this situation And he just was so confident in his spirit that God would provide. But he had to consecrate. God can sanctify, but he can only sanctify what you consecrate. In other words, if you're prepared to put something on the altar for God, if you're, we heard this morning, if you're prepared to lay things out for him, then what happens is God takes hold of that which you have put over there and said, here we are, God, I'm prepared to live this sacrifice. I'm giving it to you, whatever it may be. And when you do that, the result, as we heard this morning, is one that is miraculous. The miracle that took place on Moriah, the provision of that ram in the place of his son. And we all know, of course, that that was a story which actually indicates the way it was with God the Father when he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. When he came from the glory of heaven into a world that was full of misery and difficulty and political warfare, then nothing changes. When he came, he walked this earth for three and a half years, ministering, healing, and doing the miraculous. But at the end of that, he had to die. He became the sacrifice. When he shed his blood, that blood made the way for all of us to be forgiven. And you might think, well, I don't know how I can be forgiven. It's been so long or it's been so bad. My life has not been good. Let me explain something very simple to you. God looks in your heart. He knows what his son has done. And when he looks at you, he looks at you through the blood of his son. He doesn't see your awfulness. He doesn't want to know your awfulness. And when God forgives you, the Bible says, he puts your sin in the sea of his forgetfulness, never to be remembered against you anymore. Many years ago, when Rolls-Royce was very uh, up there, shall we say, with making cars and things, if one of their cars broke down and it happened, this is a true story, and this man, uh, his car broke down and he phoned the Rolls-Royce and they said, right, okay, and they put him into a hotel, and they said, it'll all be sorted out, Mr. whatever his name was, and uh, in the morning, you'll be good to go. They didn't quite understand how. But when he came out in the morning, there was a Rolls-Royce car, 
same model, everything looking wonderful, but it wasn't his car. And a low loader was roughing up down the road with a big cover over the top of it. And what simply had happened is they brought him another car and they put a cover over the one that was broken because Rolls-Royce never admitted that their cars broke down. It was never talked about. And I'm glad to say that tonight, if we will consecrate things to him, if we will give our lives to Jesus, if we will just offer him all that we are, he will take hold of that. The past will be forgiven. Gone. Never spoken about again. The only person that ever reminds you of your failings is Satan. Never God. Always him. Remember this, that God doesn't give a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. The second one I want to speak to you now about simply is a man called Moses. Bless him. 120 years old when he died, you know. And we all know the story well, of course. He spent these first 40 years in the house of Pharaoh in Egypt. And he was learning to be somebody. Great. But then he spent the next 40 years out in the wilderness looking after silly sheep. Well, there were his father-in-laws, and so he didn't really have much choice. But we know the story well, and you will know it. And it's in Exodus chapter 3, so that you've all got to be able to use your Bibles or your electrical gizmos. So Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take your sandals off for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of a land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, and Hittites, the Jebusites. Now the cry of Israel has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The story goes on. And there's a big debate between Moses and God. He says why he can't go. He says why he can't do it. One of his excuses was he'd got a problem with a speech impediment. He couldn't speak very clearly. God's always got an answer, by the way. Never challenge God on anything like this because he just turned around and said, well, take your brother with you. So that sorted that problem out. Moses didn't want to go back for another reason, because he killed somebody back in Egypt, and that's why he was no longer in favor in the house of Pharaoh. He didn't want to see the consequence. And he was 80 years old, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, he'd been pensioned off for years. But after he'd done this time with the sheep, he'd learnt you don't argue. And when God speaks, 
in the end of it, he decided he would go. What was all that about? Very simply this. Moses had to come to a place where he saw God, as it were, face to face. A place of revelation. Now, I'm from a firm believer. It's no good working on second-hand experience. It, my mother and father, as you know, started this church, and it started in our backyard. Well, it started in the house, actually, and eventually in a tin shed on the back garden, which was a miracle in itself. And, uh, you know, to me, it, it's been the way of life. It's been the way it is. But when we look at things like that, and we understand those years and years ago when all of that happened, the fact remains, however, that God had got a purpose. He had a reason. And for all my parents' experience in God, my oldest brother was a spastic. I'm the middle one. My brother Paul, of course, is a lovely man of God as well now. Um, and that's fine. My father was a man of miracles. We saw miracles in this place in Long Eaton over the many years. Lives changed, people surrendered to God, bodies healed and so on. That was quite normal, by the way. It didn't happen because we had a special crusade. All of that to me was normal. And as the church progressed and we went up into Bonsall Street and I and a man called Maurice Bertwistle laid the foundations and the footings for the building that was going to go up there. And eventually we were worshipping the Lord in that place. And the young people, of course, took great delight in watching my mother hit the piano. She could play it quite well, actually, but she didn't half bang it. And it was not right. And there was always flowers. My father loved flowers. No artificial, always fresh flowers. And there was some on the piano. And so as my mother was playing, it would shake these flowers and they'd go along the top. And the young people at one point were saying, well, I wonder if it'll be verse 3 or verse 4 before they get to the end and fall off. But what actually happened was my mother would be playing away and without even looking, she'd just get the flowers and move them back. Off we went. All good fun, if you like that kind of thing. But when we come back to it, we know we realize that all those experiences of my parents, what they did and what they had in God, wouldn't make a difference to me. What I am and the, what I tell you about is not what somebody else has told me. It's not because my parents were whoever they were and were doing a service for God. It's because I have proved that Jesus Christ is my Lord, my God, and my Savior. Because I have had my personal revelation of him. A time when we come and see him face to face. I was only a young boy in the Beeston Helium Church, which was where my father at the time was the Sunday school superintendent. And I would be singing. I always sing, uh, much to my wife's embarrassment. It isn't good. But, you know, when you're standing in Tesco's and you've been in that queue for so long, it, it's good, you can do that. And people turn around and they look at Yvonne and say, does he always like that? And Yvonne says, oh, yes, just, just don't, don't worry, it's okay, don't worry. And I would be on this bus coming from Beeston back to Long Eaton, including those flood, floods of 47, when the water was running up to the wheels of the bus. And we, anyway, that's another story. And I would, I would be singing the songs that we just had in church because that's what you did. And the bus conductor, because they had them in those days, would come along and he would be ready to, you know, to do the ticket and all that kind of thing. And he'd hear me chirping away. And he'd say, my, he's a happy boy. And I would look at him and I would say, yes, I love Jesus. Do you? 
four years old. I wasn't doing that because I was clever. I wasn't doing that for any other reason than I just loved Jesus. I want to tell you something. For all my years of experience in then, and there's a lot, the fact is this, my childlike faith, my simple understanding of Jesus, the one who loved me and died for me, even at the age of four, was enough for me. You can get locked up in theology. You can have your Bible and you can say, oh, well, I think it means this and I think it... I don't really care what you think about the Bible, frankly. What I know is this. If you read it and ask the Holy Spirit to show you, he will let you know what you need to know. Not bothered in what you think. It's got nothing to do with what you think. I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep me until the end of those days when I will stand before him face to face. And that day, my dear friends, is another sermon. It won't be very far away. He's coming very soon. But you need your personal revelation. Not second-hand experience. Not reading somebody else's book. They're all good and it's all fine. But at the end of the day, do you know him face to face? Do you know his love, his power and his majesty? I mean, there's a story I've told from time to time and it's when my mother had a baby when I was 14 and the baby died. And I said to God then, I don't understand this, God. Because I'd seen all this in the house in Margaret Avenue and I'd seen what they'd done with the tin shed and I'd seen all these other things. And I thought, yeah, but they've done all that and it was all for you and, and now the baby's dead. How is that? My mother nearly died. She was very poorly at that time, wasn't she, Margaret? Very poorly. And I, how can that be? Why? And you know what? God whispered into me that day. I don't often talk about it. And he said, Michael, there'll be lots of things will happen in your life that you won't understand. If I want you to know, I'll tell you. And if I don't tell you, trust me. And I can look at you in the eye and tell you to this day, for all the things that's happened in our world, Yvonne and myself, my families and so on, I've never asked why. Because I know I can trust him. Because I've had my personal revelation. And then I want to come from Horeb to another mountain. This is exciting stuff for you tonight, isn't it? I'm taking you to Carmel. And Carmel is a mountain in Israel. And the funny thing is, we talk about it as if it's kind of just one little hill or one mountain type thing. It's not. Carmel is 27 miles long. It's like traveling from Derby right the way through to Nottingham and on. It's a long, long way. And here we have a time when Israel has gone completely off the rails. They're listening to the prophets of Baal. They've been persuaded by all of their rant and all the rest of it. And here is Elijah, and he is now pulling his hair out, so to speak, because he just cannot get them to understand that they really should be serving this living God who had brought Israel from all of that captivity in Egypt all those years before in the time of Moses. And here we are so many years later, and they've all gone back on it. And then he says, well, God, I don't know what we're going to do about this. And God says, well, just listen to me. Go up Mount Carmel, challenge those prophets of Baal. There's over 400 of them, but never mind. 
and build an altar. We're back to the altar again, people. And make it and put the wood on it and the sacrifice and then tell them to call their God Baal to set fire to it. No matches. Set fire to it. And the prophets of Baal said, yes, we can do that. And so they started off and blessed them. They, they spent hours. And of course, Elijah being the man of God that he was, kept helping them along and saying, well, he could have been there for him. He might have gone on holiday or what, he may have a tea break. I don't know, but yeah, worse to that effect which didn't help them at all. And they were going frantic, and they eventually destroyed the old altar and everything else. And it came to the point where Elijah said, enough is enough. He said, stand to one side. And then he rebuilt the altar, put the wood on it, and got this sacrifice and put it back on there. And then he had them do something very strange. Dig a trench around the altar and fill it with water. Now, that in itself was very, very difficult because they were in the middle of a time of drought. There'd been no rain. But they put this water on the animal, on the wood, and all the way around. And then God, that Elijah looked up to heaven and said, God, now you'd better show these people. And God looked down at the crowds of all the Israelite people at the side of that mountainside, and he said in a loud voice, how long will you halt between two opinions? In other words, make your mind up. If God is God, the fire will come. They'd already seen that for all the prophets of Baal and all their wittering, nothing had happened. And Elijah, being a sensible man, stood back out of the way. And the fire came. And it burnt up the offering. It burnt up the wood. It burnt up the stones and all the water around it. And there was a, just a black patch where it had been. No one out there, the thousands of Israelites watching on, could deny who was God. There comes a time when you have to declare that he is God. That you have to be ready to make that very serious statement. And to anyone that is around you, anyone that wants to see you, let that fire of God come down. I've been privileged to be in meetings and simple meetings, nothing over the top, nothing exceptional in any way, except for the fact that God was there. And you know, I, I came into one, one meeting and I, I came back in, I'd left my Bible, which I have done from time to time. And I walked back into the church, no one was there, and I couldn't see the front of the church. There was this heavy mist and I just stepped forward and I knew, go no further. You're in the presence of the king. We need to make a declaration. You need to make a declaration. Do never be afraid to tell those around you that Jesus loves them. We need to stand, the church, the Christian church today, should stand in a very real way for truth. There's a lot of rubbish going on. And all this thing with Brexit, the reason why people got so confused is because that red bus told lies. Not the bus itself, you understand, but the writing on it. And the politicians of the day, they seem to have got away with it. In the secular world, they would have been in prison. But you see, people are easily confused. They're easily turned. They need to know the truth. And you know what? The greatest advert for Jesus Christ is not a red bus. It's you. 
If you think about when Moses was standing there by that bush, the Savior God said to him, take off your shoes, for where you're standing is holy ground. When you're standing in Tesco's, or Asda, I don't really mind, you can have whatever you want, and you are in that queue, or you're just walking around, remember this. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, if you have consecrated your life to him and given everything to him, and you've shown your love and faithfulness to him, he has brought about that miracle of provision for you. And you've had that moment of revelation. You, you know he's your God. And now you are there in that queue in Tesco. I've come back to Tesco's. I don't know why, actually. I don't particularly prefer Tesco's. But I don't like Aldi either. Um, but anyway, that's me. I've been shopping, by the way, in Long Eaton since I was eight years old. I used to be sent from Margaret Avenue to the Woolworths on the, on the, on the high street there. Oh, yeah. So I know about shopping. But what I know is this. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, where you stand is holy ground. Get this and get this clear. You're not just a child of God. You're not just somebody that sings the songs. And don't tell me, well, I read the Bible. Let me tell you something. The devil knows the Bible back to front. He was there when it was written. He can quote every scripture. Does that make him a Christian? I don't think so. We need to know that what makes the difference is your experience with him. How much you love him. How much you know him. How much you've seen his wonders. Three miracles took place in that time of scripture we've spoken about. The one of provision. The one where that revelation came. And the burning bush. It never actually burnt away. It was just burning. It was a God thing. And then Mount Carmel. A time when God burnt the sacrifice. He burnt the lot. And for what purpose? Just to prove that he is God. We live today in a modern world. And we live with the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And let me tell you, every one of you here tonight who love Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord... If you will follow those three simple steps we've talked about tonight, climb your mountain, do what is necessary, and I'm going to promise you something. The power of the Holy Spirit and God that works in your life is the same power of the Holy Spirit and God that works in my life and worked in my father's life who started this church in the first place. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And everyone here tonight can know that you have the right, the power, and the authority in Jesus' name to speak out, to stand against wrong, and to do what is right for the glory of his name. He loves you very much. Your Father God is very proud of you. And so tonight, when you go from here, go rejoicing. I wasn't sure how long I was supposed to speak for. I should have asked, and I'm shutting up now. But what I want you to do is stand to your feet. Let us pray. You know whether or not you're lacking in consecration. Pastor's spoken about it. That ability, your willingness to give over to him, whatever it may be. It doesn't matter. It could be anything. But consecrate it to him. Then he will sanctify it. In other words, then he will make it holy. But he can't do that until you've given it to him. And then remember, you need to see a revelation. You need to be able to 
be in the place where you're looking at and saying, Savior, Holy Spirit of God, just reveal yourself to me. And then finally, a, a willingness to make a declaration. The Lord, he is God. Father God, we thank you for our time together tonight. We praise you, Lord, because we know that you are the living Savior who's never changed. And you are the God of Abraham. You are the God of Moses. You're the God of Elijah. And you're the God of today. The miracles you did then, you can do again. We don't see people being burnt or anything happening in the way of fire and things like that today as such. But what we do know is people can be consumed by the power of your Holy Spirit. We can be set ablaze for Christ. We can know your glory. We can know that you are willing to use us. We might think that we're nothing, but to to you we are everything. As you to us are everything. Now, Sovereign Lord, keep us by your grace. Help us to walk, help us to know, and help us to really understand how wonderful you are, how precious and how glorious it is to know Jesus, our Savior, in your precious name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Well, thank you, Pastor. That's a Amazing. Listen, um, I, my, I, I was making notes when, as Mike was speaking, and uh, God can uh, only consecrate, uh, what was it Michael said? Uh, I've got it written down here. Yeah, God can sanctify only what you consecrate. God can sanctify only what you consecrate. Let, uh, perhaps if the worship guys, if you could come back, we're going we're gonna to sing and close together, but it would be good to give us, to consecrate means to give to give over, to put on the altar, to give to God, to give over to God, to sanctify, as Mike said, means to make holy, for the hand and touch of God to be upon it. Hey, isn't that great? If we give over our lives, we can have the hand and touch of God upon our lives. So if we consecrate our lives, we can have the sanctifying touch of God upon our lives. That's, not, that's a great, that's a great, great message. That is, a, that's great. And, and if we do that, God, God can do that. But if we don't, then it's not that he doesn't want to, but he's looking for willing, open hearts. And isn't that amazing? So perhaps um, we're, we're going to take up our evening offering while we worship together as we close. But it would be great um, if you feel that you'd like to consecrate your life. Then we're going to give an opportunity um, for people just to come and to come near the front. And I, I'm going to ask Pastor Mike to, to come and pray and to pray over us and pray for anybody. And uh, we'd love to do that. So we're going to worship together. We're going to take up our evening times and offerings. If you're visiting, then please let this go by. Uh, you know that you're welcome. And uh, but we're going to give an opportunity for anybody that you feel that you want to consecrate your life. You want to re- 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 rededicate or or consecrate or dedicate your life, perhaps for the first time. Then we're going to, we're going to give you an opportunity to come and I'm going to ask Pastor Mike to come and pray as well. Should we do that? It'd be good to do that. And the, God to then touch. That which you put on the altar, we put our lives. Just great, thank you. Just think this is my desire, or to honour you.